the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 255 premium for Thursday, April 15th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire, on this beautiful tax day afternoon. On the other end, and I can see him, even though you can't, is... Uh, John Efron, here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And yes, it is tax day, unless you're going to extend it, which uh, I guess you're doing that anyways, Dave. But I popped mine in the mail yesterday, just to be safe. That's good. That's smart, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine the post offices might get a little crowded as the day wears on here, so... (laughs) I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even step foot in a post office tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> today, you mean? Uh, or today? I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all right. So we have uh, we have all kinds of cool stuff to go through today for uh, for our. Is this our? This is our first premium show of April, isn't it? We're uh, uh, we're, I think so. we're yeah. Things are a little little squirrely. We actually have a uh, show number two five six coming up. As the next one, and and two five six, of course, is a very special number to geeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at, at the end of this show, we'll talk about what we're going to do with uh, with two five six, and when we at least when we think we're going to do it. So, uh, but we've got something special coming up for that, and it, it'll be in about a week, maybe a little more than a week because I'm away next week. Uh, but know. why don't we start? We've got a bunch of questions and tips, John. But uh, but let's start with cool stuff found and. Uh, is there, is there anything to report before we dig in and, and uh, hear what we have from, from Marion here? No, I don't, I don't think so. Let's, uh, let's right. dive right in. Marion says, uh, a few remarks based on show 252. You mentioned there's nowhere you can look up all Apple recall programs. That might not be true. Check out uh, apple.com slash support slash exchange underscore repair. And it, it's true. You get a lot of them there, uh, but you don't get all of them uh, there. However, uh, Marion moves on and says, I got to the site from Apple serial number info.com. After I entered my MacBook pro serial number, there was a link to the site under the repair and support section. And in case you don't know, Apple serial number info.com is a great site that gives you all the information about the Apple gear. You can imagine it'll tell you, uh, you know, what, when your machine was built, what unit it was built that week. And, uh, and, it's actually if you're obsessive about your uh, your your details of your Mac, it's a great site to visit. So that's Apple serial number info dot com. Nice. And then then I found um, actually off of one of the sites that he mentioned here, but this is um, uh, another place. Uh, Selfsolve dot Apple dot com slash get warranty dot do. So if you punch in the serial number of whatever piece of equipment you have, um, allegedly they'll they'll tell you more about it. Like if there's a return program or a repair program or something. Ah, uh, and will it all is that that's not where you get whether or not your machine is still under warranty, or does it tell you that too? Um, I didn't try it. So okay, uh, because you can you can go to uh, yeah, I guess that is it will it will tell you everything there. So and that's linked from the support.apple.com page. Uh, you click on the link that says check your service and support coverage. And then uh, you type in your serial number and, uh, and yeah, it gives you everything and it'll tell you if you have Apple care, how, how much longer you've got on that or how much longer you have on your, your traditional warranty 
and all that cool stuff. So thank you, Marion. Do we have anything else to add to this, John, before we, no. before we dig on here? All right. Andrew. Andrew writes, uh, hey, John and Dave, I found a nice little app that makes finding the mouse cursor easier when it's lost. It's called Mouse Locator, and it's at 2.5fish.com slash index.html. And to be fair, we'll put it in the show notes, of course, but 2.5fish, the point and five are written out. Uh, sorry, point and fish, of course, because there is no character for fish on our keyboards. Uh, so it's 2.5fish.com sends you to the, uh, the Mouse Locator website. Nice. Uh, and there's there's something actually built into the OS which can do this as well. Um, I'm not sure if it'll solve the problem, but if you go to System Preferences, Universal Access, Mouse and Trackpad, there's a cursor size slider, and you can make the cursor freakishly huge if you want to. Yeah, it's um, it's weird because it's pixelated when it does that, right, John? Yeah, it doesn't smooth it or anything. It just gets big and blocky, but it does make it a, a, a lot easier to... Uh, to identify though. I don't think that was the root of the, I think the, the root of the problem was whatever app was being used. Uh, I think it, it improperly hid the cursor and it wouldn't reveal it. I, I have that problem sometimes. I, and you know, I use two screens I, uh, on my main machine. I've got the, it's a MacBook pro. So there's that screen and then there's a, a bigger screen that I have next to it. And man, there's sometimes when I'll, uh, I just can't find my mouse and I'll move the mouse around and I just can't find it. But then when I click it, that seems to make it so that I can find it. I, I, and, you know, I don't know if it was there before or not, but uh, it certainly seems like it happens often enough and consistently enough that, that, I don't know, I think my mouse actually does disappear. I don't know. Hmm. I wonder if it's a mouse driver, because I, I just know some of the development that I've done that, uh, that you can, you know, the application can, uh, or at least Windows, and I assume the Mac is the same, is that you can react to certain events and say, okay, hide the cursor or change the, the shape or something like that. Right. And, uh, you know. Right. So I wonder if it's a tiny little bug in whatever software he was using. Well, it could be, and it could be the same for me. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, John, we, well, we're burning through these, um, but they are cool things. We talked a couple of weeks ago about um, a utility called iPerf, I-P-E-R-F, that allows you to che check the bandwidth on your network. And it's a command line only utility. And, uh, and we'd actually asked uh, you, John, to... Uh, to you know make that some coding project or something which i'm sure you're you're deep deep at, at work on and and we're we're pulling you away from that to do the podcast today is that is that right um no that's actually incorrect because <laughs> what i did well i i figured you know but before starting to develop something and again this is kind of something in the software world is that you before before you start coding something up see if someone else has done it and you know what, Dave? Yeah. Fortunately, someone had the, the same thought or uh, someone thought, gee, you know, I don't, I don't want people to wrestle with the, uh, the command line here. And, uh, and actually, I think I put it in the show notes for that particular show. OK, but there's a little little um, little thing called JPerf, which Brian also told us about, which uh, is basically and this is nice because it's a Java wrapper uh, or Java GUI for iPerf, which um well, it's nice that it's Java because, in theory, that means it can run on any computer that has a, uh, a Java uh, virtual machine, which I think pretty much any uh -huh. modern computer, except for certain small devices. Um, <laughs> right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> I don't even think we should even get into that. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the, the battle over, uh, over, well, over whether or not the iPhone or iPad should have Java and Flash. Well, I think someone's already decided that they should not. I think there's, there is no battle. I think the battle uh, never happened. Uh, well, I think uh, I said, well, well, I think we, we published something today and I, well, yeah. well I heard that someone's going to try to create a battle, but uh, I, uh, yeah. So, so what we're talking about here is apparently that there's, there's mumblings that Adobe, I think is going to try to sue Apple over this clause that they recently introduced saying, you know, if you want to develop on, on our portable devices, uh, you got to do, uh, and I think it's objective C, C, C plus plus, or it has to be executable by WebKit. Yeah. And that excludes certain Not WebKit, Xcode or Xcode. Yeah. Um, but I think it has to be parsable by the, the WebKit engine. I think that was another hmm. uh, condition uh, of the, uh, of the, you know, did you say WebKit. Did you mean Xcode again? No, no, I meant no, WebKit. You meant WebKit. Oh, okay. All right. I, I think that was, I'm pretty sure it was in the agreement. I don't have it okay. in front of me. All right. Um, it, it's out there. And I think we, you know, we, again, we had an article, but um, you know, I mean, I, 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 I just can't see how you can force, you know, no one's forcing you to develop for the iPhone or the iPad. Nope. I, I don't see how Adobe can make a case that they're entitled to have their, you know, proprietary, um, you know, flash technology. Uh, they should have the privilege to, to do that. You know, so they, here, here's the reality, right? And, and, and I realize we're on a tangent and we know we're going to get back to JPerf here in a minute because there's some stuff we want to say, but, but the, uh, but the reality is Apple has currently, and always, in as long as the App Store has existed, which of course isn't that long, but they've always reserved the right to reject any app for any reason. There, there is no guarantee of approval. So what they've done here is they've actually been very nice about it, and they've given at least one, and, and it's not the only one. They've, you know, they've got other uh, things in there that will just automatically get you rejected. But they've put yet another clause in that says, here's yet another reason why we would reject your app. And that's great. But, you know, it, they could have kept that out. If Adobe wants them to pull it from the, for if you know, if Adobe makes a big thing and a judge says you have to pull this from your uh, from your license agreement, I will say, great, that's fine. We're just going to leave this other clause in that still lets us reject any app for uh, for any reason. And uh, and then that's the end of it. There's no, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. Apple could have done this anyway. Who knows? Maybe they already have. We don't, I mean, we don't know. So I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where they're going with that. I, I mean, I suppose Adobe could, uh, uh, do flash in one of the approved languages. They could rewrite. Yeah. In C, uh, I think oh. it'd probably be a pain in the neck or objective oh. C or whatever. Well, I mean, isn't that what they did though? I mean, they, they wrote something that basically translates flash to, to that, but, but uses their own framework to do it. And this, this Apple says, no, you got to use our frameworks. That's my understanding. And yeah. I think there's another product that, that does the same thing uh, that, that I think translates .NET stuff over. Um, okay. Okay. Anyways, uh, yeah. back on track here. Back on you're, track. You're, you're the iPerf guy. I'm not. And yeah. You have some uh, so, things to add here. So this JPerf thing was cool because like you said, I've used iPerf before, but, but I've only used it, you know, it's a command line thing and you can get all the details for all the different stuff it does. But I didn't want to mess with any of that. I just want to test my network and, it, you know, good to go. And JPerf, because it has the user interface allows me to see all these other options in a way that actually makes sense as opposed to, you know, having to hunt through some cryptic man page. So I really liked it. Um, I, I realized I was able to test not only TCP, but UDP 
uh, which I didn't realize iPerf did. And uh, and it was cool. I, I played around with it for a little while. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely cool. It's still uh, like iPerf, uh, the, like the version of iPerf to which we linked. It still requires you to have Rosetta installed on your Intel Mac because it is a the, the binary is compiled as PowerPC. Presumably, it's mostly trivial to download I mean, the sort. It's open source. So my guess is, John, you could download the source and install and build a. Uh, a version of, of iperf that's intel native but uh but for for whatever reason that hasn't yet to happen so maybe it's not trivial maybe people have tried and uh and for whatever reason the compile fails so but uh but other other than requiring rosetta to run it it seems fine it, it does peg the cpu i don't know if it would do that if it was a uh an intel native app but um, maybe it doesn't matter it 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 it, it is even with the CPU pegged, it has been able to fully soak my gigabit Ethernet here, so it doesn't really matter. Are we moving on? Moving uh, on. Little Skype glitch there, John. But I think we heard what you said. We thought you said moving on. That we're moving on. That's right. All right. Uh, Clambake writes. Uh, just a quick note to let you know that hide quick look panel on deactivate is a newly added toggle in the latest version of Coingo software's Mac pilot. I believe that this might be the same setting as was discussed in Mac geek Gab 249 as existing in the secrets pref pane to deal with disappearing quick look panels. Uh, and this is at coingosoftware.com K O I N G O S W. Com. They're the, they're the people that also make air radar, which is cool. Uh, since Mac pilot is not a prep pane and it instead is an app, it may uh, assuage Dave's stated concerns about mucking about with the system. But note that Mac pilot is not freeware. Mac pilot's another one of those, uh, those utilities. You know, I talk about Onyx all the time, John and, and cocktail Mac pilot definitely falls into that realm. It's uh, it's, you know, one of those kind of Swiss army knife utilities. I always use Onyx. I, I recommend it to people because it's free, but uh, but MacPilot actually does have a whole lot more to it than uh, than Onyx does. So uh, so it's definitely worth checking out. It's a it's a cool piece of software for sure. Nice, yeah. And uh, as I said, while we're on the subject, Coingo Software makes uh, makes Air Radar, which is my the, essentially the replacement for. Uh, Net stumbler or eye stumbler, which is the thing that that we used to be able to use to find airport and uh, yeah wireless networks, and and then that went away because it doesn't work with Leopard or Snow Leopard or Intel or something, right? Um, you still no, use I, eye stumbler? I, I, well, eye stumbler. Um, I use it on occasion, and last I recall, eye stumbler. One, one thing that eye stumbler does that I I don't believe uh, Air Radar does. Eye stumbler will let you also stumble for uh, Bluetooth devices, and I think it also Air, has a bunch and I think it has a bonjour stumble, but I, I seem to recall it having one one feature. Okay, uh, but but I think they updated it um, for uh, Snow Leopard. Oh, okay, all right, cool. Well, then that's no, another. I, pre- I prefer I prefer Air Radar as well. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a smooth little app. I also I don't believe that Air Radar is free either, though. Uh, I believe that's a, a for pay app, but uh, but I it, it definitely worth having if you uh, if you need to do any sort of wireless troubleshooting or anything like that so all right uh are, are you looking that up for us john is that what you're uh you're off doing this is odd we we decided to turn on skype video today as a test for something that we might do in uh in a future show and so john and i for the first time uh 
on, on a remote connection are able to see each other, which is a little weird because now I can see when John disappears and goes and does stuff. When previously I had no idea. I just assumed he was listening mm-hmm. intently and hanging on every word. No, like you, I was, you know, ADD was kicking in. Uh, no, I'm just <laughs> looking at iStumbler here and I see, yeah, it has airport, Bluetooth, bonjour. Uh, one thing they added. So yeah, so it, 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 it's, it's still current. Uh, they also now have a uh, location feature, which is uh, kind of oh, interesting. That's cool. Uh, huh. Um, all right. So anyways, and, and they've, they've updated it. So now, you know, it does. Pro- I think the older versions had problems identifying the specific vendor. Right now I can see that it lists here, you know, Apple, 2Y or Cisco, or at least the, the, the ones that I see here. So, uh, so I stumbler still a uh, contender, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. They just released a version on February 16th. So yeah, I'll have to check growl. that out. It does some growl action, which is nice. I have that on. So, uh, yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm glad we, uh, I'm glad we stumbled into this conversation. Because the previous, yeah, the previous one was uh, from 2007. So it was three years ago that mm-hmm. uh, release 98 came out and this is release 99. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then right. next. That's right. You found some cool stuff or something cool. Ah, right. And this, this led me down a path I didn't expect. So here's what happens. As you know, Dave, you know, I, I ignored your advice and I got a you know mechanical hard drive instead of an SSD. Right. Of course. You um, <laughs> but you know, just to be fair, John, I, I did read an article that John Gruber likes SSD drives. So maybe, uh, maybe you'd consider getting one. Yeah. Well, he's, he's another John, you know, we, we, we got to stick together. There you go. No, as you know, my, my goal was to get space and not mm-hmm. space. Well, you know, I did see actually the, the new, um, oh my gosh, the new MacBooks that they, uh, that they yeah, just right. released. I think the i5 and the i7 machines. I did look at one of the configurations and if, if I wanted to get a 512 gig uh, SSD, I think it would only cost me a cool, I think about $1,200. Seriously? That's I, cheap for a 512. I did not look at the pricing, but but yeah, new MacBook Pros came out. Uh, let's take a little detour and talk about that for a second. Uh, they've got those i5 and i7 processors in them, and people weren't sure, me among them, uh, we weren't sure if they would ever really be able to make that work in a laptop. But uh, but those are screaming fast machines. So it, it, it's interesting. It's good. To, it's important to note, though, that only the 15 and 17 inch have the uh, the i series processors, whereas the 13 inch still has the Core 2 Duo, like uh, like well, everything before it. But uh, now, what is the uh, are these quad? Or what, what, I I haven't really kept up with what what's different between the i5 and the i7 versus the uh, the Core 2. So I I don't think it's any more well. I no I think it I think these are still dual core processors uh I, I that that's my that that's my understanding of these is that they're they're still dual core, dual core but but uh i i i think it i think they just run more efficiently i i i don't know enough about them to uh to dive in and, and tell you all the all the nitty-gritty and okay you, I, I assume you don't either uh no, I, I I could look uh, I could look, but I won't. We'll, mm-hmm. We don't want to deviate too much here. Oh uh, no, okay. And I'm looking. So the 15 inch MacBook Pro, yes. If I wanted to get a 512 gig solid state drive, I'm sorry, it's 1400 dollars extra. <sighs> That's not that bad considering. Oh no, because I looked. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, there are vendors that charge way. Uh, so I guess they're probably getting economies of scale. And then I see 256 gig is 750 extra, mm-hmm. and a 128 gig is 300 dollars extra. So, huh. Anyways, I th- I think by the time the, the the one that I have now is uh 
expired uh, SSDs will come down for the space that I want. But anyways, so here's what happened, Dave. So I put in the drive, you know, I did it myself. I fix it has a, you know, very nice, uh, way, uh, you know, and I, I've been into and out of this machine numerous times. So I'm very comfortable with it. Sure. Um, so put in the drive. You know, it's the same class of Hitachi drive, but it's, you know, it's 7,200 uh, RPM versus 50, uh, whatever the other one was. It has more cache, more throughput. So it's definitely a faster drive. But then it started doing something that started really bugging me. It started making noise. Now, now there are different noises that hard drives make. Now, this was not the tick, 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 which is usually the tick, tick, tick of death. Um, I don't know if you ever had a drive that yes. did that. But if you do, if anybody has a drive where you hear a you know, Laptop regular... Drive. Laptop or even a desktop. The I thought it was well, just the 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 Hitachi and uh, and IBM drives that that if they made that tick 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 that was that was the end of it. That's the click of death, I believe, is the yeah, uh, the well, official the technical the, term. The zip drives did that too, right? Oh yeah, God, remember those stupid things? <laughs> Actually, they so weren't that stupid at the time. They were fantastic. Hundred hundred megs on a on a single disc, dude. Mm -hmm. When was it ever going to get better than that? So here's what was happening. So when I'm using, uh, you know, when I was using the machine and, you know, typically I'm in a quiet environment in my house here, you know, I don't have music blaring or stuff like that. But every now and then I would hear like a, I, I could best describe it as like a kerchunk. So it wasn't a methodical ticking. So I didn't think the drive was dying as far as I can tell. And, uh, and once I researched this, it, here is the problem. Now, oddly enough, the other drive didn't do that. Then again, the other drive was an apple, had a little apple on it. So here's what I found. So there are a couple of settings that the hard drives have. Now, one is an acoustic setting, which um, and, and some machines let you set this. Of course, the Mac doesn't. You know, it's pretty much you're stuck with what you got. The, the, there really isn't a lot of software out there to, to let you change the hard drive parameters on the Mac. Though I found right. one. So first I thought it was this. Uh, I think it's ACC or, a, or whatever. It's, it's acoustic. It's basically a mode where you can trade performance for quiet. Okay, like and an you can a, make, a, 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 a a m I think is what it's called, automatic acoustic management. Yes, a a m. Okay, okay. that was one letter off. So Sorry. a automatic and and so this is for people that don't want the drive to make as much chattering, uh, but it typically reduces performance. That okay. was not it. And I was looking around for things that let you set that on the Mac, and I really wasn't able to find anything. Huh. But then I stumbled across another article, or actually a blog that talked about this. And there's another setting, and here's the one that was causing the problem. And I wasn't the only one that ran into this. And it's not just Hitachi. It's a few other Western Digital. I think it's, it's pretty much any drive. Um, I found a little, uh, and it's called APM is the parameter. I think that's Advanced Power Management. Yes. Here's what yeah. happens. Yeah. And it's similar in that you can trade um, power management, aggressive power management, for performance and apparently as far as i can tell what happened is that this drive which you know was not uh, did not have firmware flashed by apple apparently when it wakes up it's in aggressive power management mode and one thing that it uh, does from the, from the manufacturer yes okay i think it's the default and one effect of this is that if the hard drive's not doing anything for a while it's going to say well you know i i think i'll, I'll move the head to a nice safe place sure uh, and that's know, what hard than, drives do is they they park the head and then go to sleep here's the problem though is that this feature at its default setting was battling with the fact that the mac and i think pretty much any machine is always oh and i also switched over to iStat menus oh 
Wait a minute. You can't just drop a bomb like that in the middle of this. All right, continue, and then we're going to revisit this, John. Well, then I'll revisit. tell you why. No, no, no. Don't, uh, so, no, don't finish on your hard drive thing, and then we'll come back to iStat. Right. Well, I used iStat menu, so I could have used menu meters, but I used it to observe the fact that the Mac is always, every few seconds, even if it's ever so brief, and I think it's probably writing the system logs or something like that, is that it's always writing every few seconds. Again, it may not be a lot of data, but something's always happening in the background. I confirmed the, confirm this with menu meters. Okay. So I think what's happening is there was a little battle here is that the hard drive was like, oh, no, nothing's happening for a while. I think I'll park the head. And then the OS wrote to it, and it's like, oh, time to wake up again. And it would result in this annoying freaking kerchunk sound every 15 seconds or so. Whoa, that's a lot. And it was bothering me. It was really, really bugging me. It was, it was just, I mean, it wasn't, you know, loud, but it was just, it was annoying because the, the, my last drive, which, you know, came with the machine, didn't do this. So I found this little piece of software that this guy wrote here. And if you go to, and it's called HDAPM, Hard Drive uh, Advanced Power Management. And it's a little command line deal. Uh, McKinley, M-C-K-I-N-L-A-Y dot net dot N-Z. I'm going to guess is New Zealand. Yeah. Um, developed this little program and it does one thing and it does it very well. It lets you, and he even includes a, a plist file that lets you start it up automatically, which is pretty much right. So you could either run it manually every time from the terminal, um, or, you know, he has a file that'll, uh, you know, start it up automatically. And you basically can send whatever value you would like to the drive saying, okay, you know, either do, uh, and I guess the range is zero, which I guess is the default, all the way up to FE hex, which is basically, please be in maximum performance mode. Uh -huh. Okay, so so we're just we're setting one setting that might impact a number of different parameters in the drive. Is that is that right, John? Correct. And you know that was my thought, and and that's why I then uh, so basically by use by using this this program, it basically eliminated the Kerchunk problem. Yay! And I even tweeted this out, and a few people that follow me had a similar issue, and they confirmed this, and and it wasn't just Hitachi drives; it was people with other drives, and they were like. You know, thank you, thank you, or not to thank me, but thank the developer for coming sure. up with this. Yeah, um, and I think he even makes the source available. So, uh, the, so if you want to, or, or I may look at this because there are a lot of other parameters. Like in in the documentation for this drive, there's a boatload of parameters that you can set on the hard drive. Oh, uh, well, not it just looks, power management and stuff. Yeah, it looks like all he's doing is just sending uh, the what, what's called the mm. APM level, which is the automatic or uh, yes. automatic power management, I guess. Uh, yeah level to the drive but but yeah maybe there's some more uh, nuances that you can tweak independently of of that yeah. oh no absolutely because i dug into this so, so you know there are different commands that you can send over the bus to the drive yeah along with parameters this is doing a very specific one but i would suspect if you dig into the source code you could probably play with that i, I don't know if now I what's interesting really to me is that you can't it, that you can't set this um and have the drive remember the setting and, and and perhaps it does, but perhaps when the Mac starts up, it issues a different command to the drive. Have you, is there a way with this to pull what the setting was? Um, I think it only reports if, uh, uh, I don't think so. I think it's only. Because okay. it, it, what I would be curious of is if you go into, you know, when you go into Energy Saver, there's a, a, a checkbox. Uh, System Preferences Energy Saver. There's a checkbox that says put the hard disks to sleep when possible. 
And I wonder if this is the reason that that, you know, if, if Apple is, you know, reading this setting and on boot, sending a command to the drive saying, hey, you know, go and be in in very aggressive power management mode. And, uh, you know, and, and it's up to the drive to decide what at what point that is. And with some drives like the one you have it, uh, you know, it's it's too aggressive. And and so you want to back that down a little bit. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I I turned that setting off and it, it still made no difference. It didn't make a difference. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that answers my question. No, but it can on some. And we suggested that to some, some folks that, mm-hmm. um, yeah, especially with um, people that have issues. Some drives, yeah. Right. Else- we, we got to. We got to pause things for a second here. All right, we, we've we've recovered from uh, Skype CPU problems. So go ahead, John. Okay, but no, what you mentioned is is certainly another thing to uh, to try if uh, you know, because I think with some drives, yeah, it may, it may cause that if it's uh, you know, if if the OS is telling the drive to sleep, you, you'll get this crude chunking. Sure. So, anyways, I just want to share that with people who uh, you know don't like to hear these little chattering noises from the hard drive. I want right. to have it be silent this program should work with any ada or sata hard drive that has apm which is a feature that most of them do i can't imagine there's any drives current drives that don't support apm they'd be you know laughed out of the business by greenpeace or something Mm. well you know i mean you know you can't walk into macworld expo without seeing people picketing because you know whatever and and perhaps it worked right because all apple's machines are greener than they used to be i think greenpeace still finds something to complain about but uh but you know, it's, it's a good, they, it's a good direction. I think they actually got the nod recently because they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're reducing the amount of, of, you know, nasty chemicals that'll kill you and, and, and stuff like that, you know, using nice, nice metals. And, yeah. uh, let, One thing that looks anyway. cool on those new Macs and I still, I do want to research I five and I seven. I, I, you know, I did a little quick glance at a chart here while, uh, while we were talking, but I, I didn't know, obviously didn't have enough time to, to read and absorb. So I, I don't want to go down that path without being informed. But uh, the interesting thing is the battery life that Apple's reporting on these, you know, 10 hour reported battery life on the uh, 13 inch and, you know, eight hours on the biggest manliest, you know, 17 inch machine. So uh, I'm, I'm that that's impressive. If, uh, if those numbers are right, I like that. That's good. Uh, all right, John. So before we move on to uh, some of the questions that we have queued up here, uh, th- there's one thing we have to discuss though. The, the, you've you've made so you, there's massive changes going on in your life right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I half expected you to come online and and have shaved your head and be bald because uh, that's next week. Okay, good because that's a minor change compared to moving from Eudora to Mail or moving from Menu Meters to iStat. You've been uh, you've been so tell us about this most recent one. What what prompted the iStat change? Well, after I made this change, I was concerned that this power management mode may be running the drive too hot. Mm. And then here's where I made the realization that uh, my setup was probably not the best, is that menu meters does not have the facility to report temperature. Right. Um, So I was running both menu meters to give me some information. Then I was running this other thing called temperature monitor to do temperature monitoring. Now, in its defense, Temperature Monitor is a more sophisticated program is that it can do historical graphs and, and, and all sorts of wonderful stuff. But I didn't need that. I basically just wanted to have something that would tell me, was the drive running too hot? And, and the answer is it really wasn't. I mean, the drive, you know, even with this new setting, um, is still running at, you know, high 90s or, you know, 100 degrees or so, which is what I've seen it run at before. Sure. So, okay. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's um, actually, that's smart, man, to keep an eye on that. That's good. 
Yeah, so I like it. It's uh, it's very flexible. Um, you know, I like the, the way you can customize it. I'm not running all of the features, but you know, sure. I'm pretty much the ones I was doing before, including yeah. temperature. Yep. And I like the fact that it gives you a lot of flexibility. For example, I thought that the text labels were kind of hokey, so I, I, I don't have those. And they also kind of take up space, which is kind of, you know, unnecessary. Yep. Yeah. But I know it's the CPU meter or the temperature. So, uh, yeah. so yeah. no, it, it, to me, it's a, you know, I got a more efficient operation now and that I'm using a single program versus two programs. Uh, and and I, I know I've mentioned this before, but I just wanted to point it out to you is that in iStat menus, and of course, you know, the assumption being made here is that you can't possibly run your machine without either menu meters or iStat menus. It's not if it's which. Right. Uh, but uh, in the uh, in the RAM and CPU menu, if you click on it, I, I, the thing I love is that I can see the top five. Uh, either CPU hogs or RAM hogs listed and updated, you know, every second uh, right there in the menu. So I don't have to go and run activity monitor to see what's chewing up all my CPU or all my RAM. And uh, that, that I love. That's that's one of my one of my favorite features. And I have trouble living without it on a machine yeah. that doesn't have it. Yeah. And I like also the temperature. I didn't know, but the, there are way more temperature sensors uh, <laughs> and, and voltage. Well, they have temperature and voltage, but there's right. way more than I thought. Like it has the individual cells in the battery. So I guess that would be a good diagnostic tool. If you think that, you know, a cell in your battery is defective, which is sometimes what causes like we've heard problems. People had them before where their, their machine typically will just shut off for no reason. And right. I think it's usually due to a damaged cell. So this shows the voltage of all the cells and you know, on my machine, they're all the same. And I think that's you know, the, the, the way it should be. I never noticed that. I, uh, I'm going to have to go check that out on my MacBook pro. I, I never realized it reported cell voltage. Oh, and it even has voltages of the uh, the CPU, that the I've GPUs, seen. and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm 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 sold. And uh, I know you mentioned. Uh, I think in the past the, 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 this uh, program was kind of a CPU hog, but doesn't uh, matter. Yeah, not not on not yeah. on this machine. Yeah, it still is, but but not in a way that matters anymore. CPUs got faster. Uh, and and I keep deferring our questions because we talked about ten point six point three. Earlier this week, or maybe late last, no, earlier this week, uh, Apple released 10.6.3 version 1.1. Uh-huh. Yes. I didn't get it. Well, and that's because why. you don't need it. Yeah, that's right. I know. Uh, so the update is for people who updated to 10.6.3 from 10.6.0, which, of course, is me, uh, because, uh, you know, as you remember from the last show, I... Uh, I upgraded my daughter's machine. I had, I brought it back to 10.6.0 and then upgraded it to 10.6.3. So now I have to decide if I'm going to muck with, uh, with that, that with, with, you know, reinstalling a combo updater on that again. But, uh, that's, uh, that's who it's for. And the, the answer is if you need it, software update will tell you. So if software update, if you run software update and it doesn't, you know, it says everything's good, then everything's good. Don't worry about it. So that's the, uh, that's the answer on 10.6.3. Huh. Maybe yep. you should do what I do, Dave, and just, uh, you know, do software update. <laughs> I use software update, and that's what caused my problems with uh, with my daughter's Hackintosh. Uh, yeah. I, I, okay. I don't know why I bent that rule. I, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stupid of me. Yeah. I was, I was frantically looking for this update because I saw a number of people say, hey, a new 10.6.3 is out. And I yeah. kept running software update, and it wasn't happening. And then, yeah, I saw the follow-up article, I think we did, did saying, well, mm -hmm. if you don't need it. Yeah. Apple was tight lipped about it. And then this, you know, knowledge base article just sort of appeared, but you know, their PR people were like, well, hmm, hmm, hmm. we don't, you know, they don't know. So, all right. On to Rick. 
Rick asks, Dave, in the past, you have suggested putting the users folder on iDisk. Recently, you have changed your suggestion to Dropbox. Can you please elaborate on how you suggest setting that up for us? Okay, uh, this is interesting because it, there's a possibility here using, using either iDisk or Dropbox to have your documents automatically synced to all your Macs, which is really, really cool. Uh, so I, and I used to use iDisk and the reason that I moved from iDisk to Dropbox is one thing and one thing, and I continue to pay for iDisk and I just don't use it. And it kind of drives me crazy is that on my Mac, the iDisk is stored as a disk image. Uh, whereas Dropbox just applies to a normal folder on my Mac. So I don't need to have some wacky disk image thing. And, and, you know, to be fair, the OS 10 mounts the disk image like a normal disk. And, you know, it, it sort of manages that in a fairly seamless way where it breaks apart is time machine. Uh, you're not backing up individual files on your iDisk. You're backing up slices of the disk image. So if you want to go back in time to something on your iDisk, you have to actually restore the entire disk to a previous state and time. And you got to know where to go. You got to go to, you know, users, uh, library, file sync. I mean, it's a it's a really convoluted thing and it causes kind of some weird stuff. So that's why uh, I moved to using Dropbox for this. They both sync with the cloud. They both sync with all my other Macs uh, and and, you know, presumably at some point I'm going to regret this decision because the iPhone and the iPad are going to have, you know, a file system that I can only imagine will be linked to my iDisk. So I'm going to have to kind of reevaluate that. But uh, but yeah, so that's the reason uh, some specifics about it for you, Rick. First of all, I do not recommend putting your whole users folder uh, uh, on anything like this. That would be uh, a mess uh, or at least potentially a mess. All I do is I create a inside my documents folder because some things just like to create stuff on your documents folder, like parallels. It's either parallels or VMware puts all your virtual machines right in your you know, user's documents folder. And I don't, I don't want that necessarily synced up to my iDisk or my Dropbox. So inside my documents folder, I created a folder uh, that called Dave's files. And it's in there that I have all of my stuff uh, synced up. And that's the folder that I sync to the Dropbox. And I just, I point my Dropbox at that. Uh, but you could just as easily take that, you know, that Dave's files folder and put it inside your Dropbox folder, which would be in users. For me, it's users Dave slash Dropbox. So you can do it either way, but whichever way you choose, the, the, the concept is store your documents folder in your Dropbox and, uh, and then up it goes. So mm. is that, did, did I get that, John? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, another thing is that, yeah, there are going to be some probably whopping huge uh, folders here if you do the whole user folder. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, music, size constraints. movies, sure. downloads, uh, library, and, and library, I don't think you should, uh, I think library should stay where it is. Right where it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, you, you know, uh, but the, the, it's cool. And uh, I think we mentioned it in the last show, but, you know, Dropbox is uh, is available for free. You get two gigs, two and a quarter gigs for free. And we've got I'm all filled up on mine now. But I think we put Michael Johnston's link in, in the last show notes instead. Uh, and, uh, and I'm not sure if Pete needs one. But once Michael's filled up, we'll, we'll bounce it to somebody else here. But um, but, yeah, you, you know, you get an extra quarter gig by using the link, the link that we have. And, and so do so do we or so does whoever's, you know, doing it. And you can get up to 10 gigs total. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you have friends or whatever that you want to sign up, go, go into your Dropbox account and give them referrals and you can, you can really blast that up. You can go from two gigs to 10 gigs for free. Um, and, and Dropbox is great. It's, you know, amazingly reliable. I've been using it for a, a while, uh, a couple of years now, and it's, I, I, I really like it. It's, it's one of those, you know, immediately install on a new machine things for me. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like it for, I, I find it quick. Uh, I find it a lot of times quicker to use that than to use like a flash drive or something to get stuff between <laughs> machines. Yeah. Especially if you're on different platforms, which, which gets to be kind of a hassle, especially if you're talking different disc formats. I find Dropbox uh, very handy for that. Yeah. And it's cool. It, it's actually important to mention, uh, you know, you and I use Dropbox for syncing up the collateral that we have for the show here. You know, we've got some PDFs and audio files and the agenda and all that. And so once that's built, what I do is I put it, John and I have one folder. Our drop boxes are our own, but we have one folder that's in common between the two. And I think, I don't know, my guess is I created it, but it doesn't matter who creates the folder. Then you go in and into your Dropbox interface on the web and you say, I want to share this folder with other people. And it becomes this collaborative thing. And there's not user permissions or anything. It's not, it's not robust in that sense, but sense, but it, you know, it just becomes a shared folder. But it's the only, you know, John can only see that folder in my Dropbox. The rest of them are are private to me. And uh, and the same with yours. I can't see any stuff, anything else in your Dropbox. But the cool thing is, as soon as I put stuff in the folder, or as soon as you put stuff in the folder, it's replicated to the other guy. And we've just magically got it. And just now uh, we had an audio comment that if we stop chattering here, we'll finally get to. And uh, and, you know, I hadn't put it in the agenda. And so I was like, oh, let me find it. And so I put it in the Dropbox and immediately John just started playing it. You know, I mean, it downloaded pretty quick. And that was that. So it's pretty it's pretty cool. Time time for Daniel. Absolutely. You know, the one thing I noticed with Dropbox or something else that I tried lately is it sometimes makes you wish that you had a uh, higher uh, upstream bandwidth. Yeah, it does. Because, yeah, sending big files up. Uh, the one thing that's gotten better if you use Dropbox, you know, uh, years ago or a year ago, uh, the, the one of the big changes they've made is that they'll let you sync uh, files if, if, you know, if I've got three machines that are all synced with my Dropbox and they're on the same local network, all in my house here, all connected to the same router, instead of sending it up and back, Dropbox will actually sync just locally amongst my network, which is much, much more efficient. Uh, so that that did make that part of it better. But, yeah, it's still, yeah, you need more. We always need more. But that's normal. Is it? Oh, I see. Okay. Enable LAN sync. Yeah. I think it's that feature. Okay. I see that's it right, right here. Nice. Yes. Yep. yep. All right. Uh, on to Daniel. I'm a happy user of Time Machine and use it with a FireWire drive regularly. A friend of mine has a time capsule and has agreed to allow me to use it uh, in the interest of an offsite backup. However, I don't want to fill up his time capsule with anything but the most important data, i.e. there's no reason to back up my rather large iTunes library offsite, although I do keep it backed up locally. Do you know of a way to configure Time Machine to back up different sets of data to different destinations? I haven't actually connected my Mac to the time capsule yet because I don't want Time Machine to take off backing up without me having had a chance to restrict it. So I'm making a few assumptions. One will time or one is that Time Machine will allow you to back up to more than one destination. Uh, the connection to each of those destinations does not have to be the same. And it's not immediately obvious how to choose different backup sets for each destination after hooking up. Okay, so let's let's address some of this here, John. Uh, 
First and foremost, Time Machine is capable of backing up to multiple destinations, uh, but you have to choose which destination you plan you want to back up to manually by going into system preferences time machine and choosing it there it won't forget about well the old one won't forget about your computer meaning that once you point back to the first one uh you'll start where you res- where you know you'll resume from where you left off but uh but that's it that's the only real change you can't have different you can and you know to as far as the restrictions go you can't have uh time machine is opt out that's the only thing you can set is what not to back up you you can't do it as an opt-in and say only back up these three things you have to say back up everything but uh and you know and, and you're just adding tons and tons of things to the uh to the exclusions list and that list is the same regardless of what destination you're backing up to so you could certainly manage this manually change your destination you know, manually update your exclusions list, tell it to back up, then change your destination back, manually update your exclusions list and back up. But yeah. that's, uh, yeah, that's not, <laughs> life's too short for that. <laughs> uh, I, I'd recommend using probably ProSoft's data backup. Super Duper and, and Carbon Copy Cloner are cool, but again, they're really built for backing up, you know, one folder or one entire drive, whereas data backup kind of lets you pick and choose. And I don't use carbon copy cloner nearly as much as super duper, but is that, is that an accurate assessment there, John? Um, sounds good to me. Or, okay. or another option. Yeah. Did you, do you notice this? Uh, I remember uh, oh. uh, mobile, you know what I'm going to say? I do mobile actually. Me. Yeah. Cause I prepped this before this happened. That's right. Go. No, yeah, go mobile go. me. So, so for a while and they've been kind of slacking off lately, but, but <laughs> with mobile me, uh, they would put in your iDisk a, a little folder of goodies. And I think they've kind of, you know, haven't, haven't really done that as of late. And then all of a sudden, uh, the, this shocker came across Twitter in that Apple has a backup utility called Backup, I think. And they updated it for Snow Leopard. I, I was floored. I, I think I actually had to download it again because I didn't have it yeah. on my MacBook Pro because I thought they just kind of abandoned it. And, and I wasn't really crazy about the... Uh, well, it, it's. I think it's a good basic... Uh, I, I don't know if it offers... Well, it, it's a good basic backup program. I don't use it personally. Yeah, that's true. You know, I used to use it all the time to back up our FileMaker database. You could set it up to do an automated thing. It was sort of weird and doing incrementals. It was, you know, the interface was quirky, but if you already have mobile me, it is free. It You look in your iDisk, you go into the software folder, and then uh, there's a folder called backup, and there'll be a disk image in there for mobile me backup version 3.2. Uh, and you open up the disk image and then you're good to go. But yeah, that's right. That, that would, that would do this. Uh, and there's um, that, that's not a bad idea, actually, it, of all the the if you have. Well, I was going to say of all the free options, but uh, you know, I disk is or mobile me is not free. But if you already have mobile me, then then this is definitely the cheapest option to have a manually configurable backup set uh, for yourself. So, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I see it has some predefined things and then it also has custom. Yep. Like it, I guess you can get down to a, a level of granularity that uh, that. Yeah, if you if you plan to go very granular with it, my advice is go out and buy ProSoft data backup mm-hmm. because you will drive yourself crazy. But if you're if you're OK, you know, if you've spent five to ten minutes in there and you got it working the way you want, you're good to go. If it's going to take you more than that, then it's probably not going to do it anyway. So. Whatever happened to our pal? Uh, retrospect. Uh, yeah. 
That's a shame, isn't it? Did they? Uh, I mean, I used to use it for a while. The the, the interface was always kind of they they so EMC picked that up. Yeah, and, and they they're coming back around. They have a uh, a version of retrospect for I think for Snow Leopard, right? Oh, here we go. EMC retrospect for yep. Mac Eight. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah. No, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was eight. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and they announced it at MacWorld last year. I kept they they called it Retrospect X for a while. I think uh, so. I kept thinking they were going to call it Retrospect Ten, but uh, but yeah, it. I I think it's I think it's probably more convoluted than you need. But uh, but to be honest, I have not used Retrospect Eight. I I used to be a dyed in the wool Retrospect user with all my clients and with myself, and I tape drives and zip drives and all that stuff. But uh, but I gave up on it when they, you know, it took so long to to make it to OS 10. So well, that I think was their strength. And, yeah, I'm looking here. So they support Leopard and Snow Leopard. I think their strength, Dave, though, I think it's less relevant these days, was that they supported pretty much any obscure piece of hardware that you wanted to use for backup. Like you mentioned, I mean, DATS and everything. Yeah. I think I think when, you know, I mean, to me, just getting another hard drive to me is pretty much the. Oh, Best these days, that's the answer. Up. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. I uh, Well, I know some people that still use tape, but I, I I, don't know if it, you really get the bang for the buck anymore. It's not like the old days with tape, no. But, you know, it is handy if you want to take it off site or, uh, but yeah, I mean, you could almost do it just as easily with a hard drive. But yeah, it, it, the other thing I liked about Retrospect was if you were backing up an office worth of computers, you had one server machine that kind of managed everything. And uh, multiple, you know, multi-platform clients, I could have Windows clients, but it was all managed by the server. The server had to initiate the backup. So there was, you know, Retrospect was, was, was uh, brought into existence long before laptops were the most common machine that everybody had. Right. So really what you'd do is you'd have all these machines that would be sitting in the office overnight and, you know, you just back those up when people aren't there or just have it roll through the backups during the day and you just kind of manage the network usage. And it was great at all that. But there was always this kind of wild card of, oh, yeah, the laptops, they're always a pain to get retrospect because, you know, and that's where Time Machine totally rocks because it's managed by the machine, not by the not by the time capsule or whatever. You know, as soon as the machine is on the network, it says, yep, I'm good to go. I'm going to start backing up. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't I, for Dan's purpose, I, Daniel's purpose. Sorry, I don't think uh, I don't think the retrospect. I don't know. I guess I should check it out. It's been it's been long enough, and I've gotten yeah. over the fact that they ignored us for so long. Mm, pretty good beat a copy out of them. Anyways, um, you know, and also speaking of Time Machine, I actually ran something. I think we mentioned in the past, but I thought I'd bring it up again. Yeah, something called Time Tracker is pretty neat. I never really looked at it until uh, until uh, as of late. Yep. Uh, actually, the reason I wanted to look at it. So one, you, we, you we've mentioned it before, but you yeah. Know. Yeah, no. Well, it basically tells you what files were backed up because you can't tell this if you just look at the, uh, you know, the, the time machine backup because it shows you everything. So this does a delta between, I guess, uh, the the two. But um, the reason I want to look at this was because here's what happened, Dave. Another thing about the drive that I put in here, and th this uh, this was unexpected. So I used Carbon Copy Cloner when I went from my old drive to my new drive. Put in the new drive, had the same name. You know, of course, Time Machine was already set up to back up from it, started Time Machine, and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to back up 160 gigs of data. I'm like, um, um, nothing's changed. All the files are exactly the same. And I stopped it because I usually am on wireless, and I'm like, you know, this, this is really bad. 
It would not. I thought maybe it was the drive label. So I even changed because the drive label, the, the, the creation of modification dates had changed and I thought it was keying off of that. It, it must be keying off of something else, Dave. Like uh, I think you suspected the drive serial number because it insisted on backing up the entire drive again. Yeah, I've 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 heard some people talk about um, th- th- there is there's some way of making it so that time machine sees that the backup that's out there is is from the same drive that you have on your system and just doing an incremental like you know like it's always done but yeah. uh yeah I, I i it it from what i recall it was a very convoluted process uh or at least mucked about with with some very very specific things and i i think it's any of you look in the time machine backup there's some ids and i know one of them is the mac address the other is the uh the name of the drive, but I think there's, there's yeah. one more hidden file out there <laughs> oh, that, okay. that identifies the actual drive that it came from. And, and it might be right. Yeah. It might be using that, that, uh, whatchamacallit serial number. Okay. Cause when that happened, I basically set that baby up. Uh, I basically took it off a of wireless, yeah. put it on gigabit ethernet and let, and plugged it directly in and let it run overnight. Cause it did take overnight. Oh yeah. I'm going to do that over wireless, you know, doing 160 gigabytes. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's too bad there's not an easy way to just say, trust me, that's my drive, you know, but uh, that's all right. On to Paul. Uh, Yeah, all right. Sure. This will get this will get geeky. How are we doing on time here? We're at uh, we're at 53 minutes. Uh, We we got to let's see. um, Hmm. hmm. I want to make sure we do Sandro, too. So let's do Sandro quick and then uh, and then we'll do Paul to wrap it up. And uh now, of course, I'm totally out of sync with myself. But. Hi, guys. Sandro here of the My Phototech podcast. Uh, I was listening to just uh, this morning to your show number 252 premium, uh, where Jim was asking a question about pages and uh, setting up default in- indents uh, for uh, lists. And um, I think I've uh, I think if I understand the question correctly, I think I I have the solution uh, here. Well, let me let me just go over this. Uh, If I'm uh, in a blank document, let's say, and um, I want to start a list, a numbered list, a a numbered list, uh, I first would go to the inspector select T for text, in other words, the text inspector, and then um, click on the list tab within the text inspector. And down uh, at the bottom, we have bullets and numbering, and I would select, let's say, numbers, and then a type of numbering. So we'll just use regular Roman numerals through these pop-down menus. Now, down further, uh, we see a couple fields for number indent and text indent. The number indent being the actual uh, number in the list and where and how it's indented in inches. And then there's the text indent, which means basically the distance between the number and the start of the text on that particular line. So. So I can customize this to my liking. Now, the question is, how do we save this in some way so that if we start creating another list here on this document, we can use these same parameters? Well, that's done by 
saving this as a custom style. Now, if I can, there's a couple ways to get there, but the easiest one is that little blue button in the toolbar up at the top of the pages pay, uh, document that we're working on. Uh, and if we hover over it, it says show or hide the styles drawer. So if I open the styles drawer, we'll see that uh, down in the list styles, uh, because I essentially changed the uh, default style for the numbering list or the numbered list in this particular uh, template, which is the blank template here that I'm working on, uh, I can simply click. Uh, I'll see that there's a red down-pointing arrow uh, next to numbered list, and um, that means that a change was made, deviating from the default uh, parameters for for that particular style. So by clicking on that red arrow, I can I I will see uh, one option here is to create a new paragraph style uh, from or rather create a new list style from the selection. In other words, uh, where my insertion point is in the document, which is this, this new list. And so um, I select that, and I can give it a name. And generally when I do these things, I'll, I'll use my initials first, and then a name, like in this case would be SVC dash, uh, you know, my numbered list. Whatever, you can have as many as you want. And that creates your own custom list, which then later on in this document, you can, uh, if you have another list, let's say you can, you can select it and apply your style. And um, so the question then is, well, how, how can I use this, my own style of list here for other documents? Well, the thing is, this change that I just made will travel with this particular file. And to make it uh, part of the uh, system here, the pages uh, system, so that you can use your style again in, in future documents, is to save this as a template. Save this document as a template. And that would be done from the file menu. File, save as template. And you and we'll, we'll wrap it up there, but that's... that. It was a long comment. Thank you, Sandra, for taking the time to explain that. There were many things I didn't realize were possible in numbers. Uh, sorry, in pages uh, there. Wow. One of which was the styles drawer. I had never seen that. Uh, it, you know, Apple does a fairly decent job of keeping the user interface uncluttered. But sometimes that's at the expense of actually letting you know what some features are. I had no idea. I kind of walked through this as I was listening to his comment the first time. And uh, and that's interesting. Now, now what he uh, I think what he said is, as his comment uh, wore on, was that there is no way to do this globally. You have to save it as a template for your, uh, you know, for yourself. But but you can't apply it like with Word. You can't apply it to a, a global template and and just have it there automatically. So you've got to save this template and then reopen it. So uh, so bear that in mind as you're you know as you're doing this. But it is possible to save. Uh, to change the default list layouts uh, and uh, and then save them. So thank you, Sandra, for for taking the time to walk us through that. I appreciate it. And I I think that there's at least a sizable amount of our listeners who also appreciate it. Time to do Paul, John. Do we do we dive into uh, this here? I don't think there's a 
Yeah. Yeah. Paul. Or right. Joe. Well, we'll save Joe for. Uh, yeah, we'll do. We'll save Joe for another time. Okay. Uh, so Paul writes. Uh, I would uh, I was hoping that you'd be kind enough to either point me to the previous episode in which you talked about or rehash the topic of prioritizing traffic on my land to give my server a constant amount of throughput while other computers on the land have a limited amount to do basic surfing. Basically, I've got a server set up at work, G4 running 10 for 411, uh, which doesn't matter for for this purpose. Uh, and I need to give it priority on the network to do AFP transfers to an offsite location. At the same time, I don't want it taking up 100 percent of the bandwidth, thus leaving the other computers struggling to just load a Web page while the heavy uploads are underway. Uh, and, yeah, we've talked about this before in tangentially, but never, never directly. So happy to uh, to address it here. There's a couple of different ways to accomplish this. For me, the most elegant way is if your router supports something called quality of service, and it's sometimes known as packet shaping, uh, the Linksys routers do. The, the reality is that most of the consumer grade routers that we all have, uh, if they support it, it's not perfect. Uh, but it's workable if you're willing to give up. In fact, I think with any of these implementations, you have to be willing to give up a little bit of your bandwidth overall to make this work. And the way it works is you tell your router, okay, here's the amount of bandwidth I'm buying from my internet provider. I mean, maybe it's uh, you know, 15 megs down and two megs up. And so you plug that in and then you can start by prioritizing either uh, on my Linksys router, especially with the uh, with the DD-WRT firmware that I use, you know, I can pick by port what port it's plugged into or I can pick by MAC address and say, OK, you know, make sure to prioritize this computer and you can you can get as, as detailed or uh, uh, or, you know, keep it as high level as you want. You could just say, give my server ultimate priority and give the other computers, you know, set the server to 10 and set the other computers to five. Right. Or. You can say, I want to give this computer a certain amount at this time. And it all depends on your router software. Again, the DDWRT software, that's uh, a third party. It's free that you can put on most, but not all Linksys routers is, uh, is definitely capable, capable of this. Apple's firmware in their routers is not. Uh, I'm sure the router itself is as capable of it as the Linksys routers are, but Apple does not provide a way for us to manage this. Um, despite the fact that the software is probably right there in the router anyway. Uh, so, so that, that would be the best way to do it because that way you're managing it at the point of, of entry and exit to the network, right? You know, you, you, you want to have a gatekeeper, it's good to put them at the door. So mm -hmm. that, that, that's step one. But if you can't do that, John, you had a, a you had a very creative idea for this. So, yeah. So here's the, the, this makes you the cheapskate option because you don't have to spend any money, <laughs> but well, you may have to spend some money. Sure. Um, anyways, uh, here's, uh, yeah, and I, I'm just going to spit it out. Yeah. No, I'm not going to, because that'll mess up my mic. <laughs> There's another way you could do this and that's rather than, so I, I'm with you, Dave, is that the, doing it at the router is the best centralized way to manage this sort of thing. But if, if you can't, here's another way to go about it. What you, what you may not know, and, and I haven't really did, did, done this, so I'm going to try it is that uh, underneath the covers, uh, the firewall in Mac OS X is uh, IPFW, I guess Internet Protocol Firewall. Well, in addition to, and I believe this is still true in uh, Snow Leopard, um, in addition to it um, allowing, you know, being a firewall that, you know, keeps bad stuff out, 
Another feature is that it'll allow you to define the maximum bandwidth of what they, they define as a pipe. And I found a, a OS X Hints article. I'll link to that. So there are a couple of ways you could do this. So one is you could dive right in and go to the command line. And they have an example here. And it gets, uh, it gets pretty low level. So, you know, if you want to define a pipe that, uh, for example, you know, is 15K per second, you type in sudo IPFW pipe one, which I guess is the pipe number, config BW, which I'm going to think is bandwidth, and then the amount of bandwidth. And then another command that attaches that pipe to a specific port. So you have to do a per port. So if he's doing uh, AFP, whatever, um, I forget which one that's on, or if that's going over port 80, that's probably, is that going over port 80? Uh, 548 is. Or it's 548, okay. Yeah, but port 80 is uh, web browsing. But uh, but there is a way, this Mac OS 10 Hints article doesn't talk about it, but there is a way to make it uh, system-wide that you can throttle the bandwidth. Um so, so, you know, some digging in, in ports and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but there, there definitely is a way cause I've done it to, uh, to, to throttle the, the whole connection. So, okay. It, it's not the best solution because it's not very dynamic, but you may want to, because I think the concern is, uh, or, or what I'm reading into his solution here is that he doesn't want one machine to be hogging all the bandwidth and everybody else is stuck. Right. So maybe the way to do this would be to limit the bandwidth on this one machine that needs to do this heavy duty traffic and pick a reasonable value where you still have enough bandwidth for, for other people. Yeah. Leave, leave yourself out. some headroom so that, you know, the, 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 the worst thing is when you're using either all of your downstream or all of your upstream uh, and, and what, you know, then even something as trivial as checking email becomes very, very slow because there's this lag and turnaround because there's no extra bandwidth to be used. So by throttling the, the bandwidth of any one machine, uh, you know, you, you have the ability of leaving some headroom. What's even better, of course, you know, if you do it on the router, then the router has the headroom and can manage it, you know, kind of globally that way. But, uh, but yeah, no, IPFW will do it. There's a, there's a piece of software called water roof. You know, I had that in front of me, man. Uh, the, Great minds think alike. I, I was going to mention if you, yeah, yeah, go ahead. If you don't want to muck with the terminal. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. That That's the answer is Waterroof. It it manages this IPFW stuff, but it does it from you create the pipes there in the in their interface and you attach them and detach them uh, right there. It's it's not it, you know, it's not certainly not the most most elegant interface, but it's way better than the terminal if you're not comfortable with the terminal. And it it also remembers your settings so you don't have to, you know, create some script that does it. It just, you know, it'll do it and you can either turn it on or turn it off and it's just boom, it works. So uh, instead of trying to guess it, oh, well, how do I do it for multiple ports or how do I do this? It, it You know, you just do it in the in the GUI, just like we were talking about yeah. with JPerf before. It's the same kind of thing. It's a, a wrapper for the command line. Uh, so, yeah. And it has a specific button bandwidth manager yeah. that lets yeah. you, uh, it does it really well. Actually. That'll ask you these parameters. You, you still may need to understand you know, a little bit about what you're doing here. And, uh, yeah. And I think the name is cute too. Yeah. You I know, like that. Firewall. Water roof, water fire, roof. Ha, humor. Yeah. <laughs> humor is a funny thing. Mm. Uh, so there's the band. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, this is show 255. Uh, show 256 is the next one. And, and, uh, we, we will be coy and say, uh, yeah, you know, we didn't want to do something special for show 250 because that number is not not a cool geeky number. 256 is geekier. But the reality is uh, we didn't really think of anything uh, to do and we right. didn't prep in time. So we just, 250 just came and went like it was any other show. 
which it was good. You know, that's okay. We, we still held ourselves to our high standards. Uh, however, we wh- one thing we want to do, John and I are always, you know, for show 100, which of course all you can still hear in the archives, John and I went back and talked about all the computers that we had throughout our, our history here. And it worked out really, really well. It was so cool. Uh, I had so much fun doing that, and I I know we got a lot of listener comments for it. Uh, For this one, what John and I have talked about doing is is talking about all of the ways we've connected to the internet all the way through. So so that will be our uh, our topic for show two five six, and uh, and I think I think the technology exists for us to take our Skype video. And broadcast it to Ustream. Uh-huh. So you'll be able to see us do this. The plan is either to do it the night of Sunday the 25th or Monday the 26th. And we got to figure out our schedules and we'll we'll post something on TMO. How's that sound? Yeah, we'll put it up on TMO. That's good. Sure. Right. You, you, you folks know to check TMO. Even though I'll be on vacation next week, we'll, we'll put something up on the Mac Observer on uh uh, you know, on, on Friday, it'll be, it'll be there on Friday. Yeah. Uh, so you can see it over the weekend and that will let you know when the, uh, when the live thing is. So, yeah, by the way, two fifty six for those that don't get it, we'll, we'll help your geek cred here is two to the eighth, <laughs> two to the eighth power because computers do everything in uh, binary or base two. That's right. That's right. Or, or most things. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right, Michael Johnston, he does the This Week in iPhone podcast, and uh, he's also the one that converts all these to AAC for us and for you. I guess as a matter of course, we should go through the contact information, even though I'm sure all of our premium subscribers here, John, uh, know how to get in touch with us. But well, they may not. You that's know, true. We, we, we'll just have to remind them that if you want to uh, call us, you should call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335 you can email us to premium at macgeekgab.com. I know you said premium at macgeekgab.com. Oh, you, you know I said premium at macgeekgab.com, and that's what I meant. So uh, so that's uh, that's that. You can Skype us to macgeekgab, and uh, I guess that's that. I'm trying to think uh, if, if you want to find else. out uh, show-related events, of course, uh, well, you know, Twitter, I am John F. Ron, Dave is Dave Hamilton. Uh, Pilot Pete, who's um, Pilot Pete, is Pilot Pete. <laughs> wow, that's, that's uh, it's pretty and um, pretty uh, deep. But also, man. if you want to follow, uh, we've been getting better about this. If you want to follow uh, show-related events, like uh, when the shows are posted ah. or when the show notes are done, or when the live follow. show is going to be, right? Please right? follow Mac Geek Gab. And if you just want to, you know, enjoy the whole uh, Mac Observer goodness, you can of course follow Mac Observer on Twitter. That's right. Yeah. So definitely follow Mac Geek Gab, or at the very least, just check twitter.com slash Mac Geek Gab. The time uh, and and instructions for the live show will be posted there. So um, we'll, we'll figure it out. It's uh, I think it's going to work. I'm going to use Cam Twist and Ustream, John, and we'll see if we can't hmm. can't blow the processor up here. So. Yeah, you may max me out. Oh well, no, you you got more uh, headroom than I do there. Yeah, well, you're you're you don't whatever you're doing now is all you'll need to do in terms of your computer's processor. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah well, nothing on your end will change. So. Okay. No, I'm yeah. doing pretty good here. The G5 still has a little life. I'm, I'm right now in about seventy-five percent on both cores. Okay. And I'm using the uh, the eyesight over uh, FireWire, which okay. uh, seems to be working just fine. So far, so good. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's get out of here. That's it. We're done, right? Yes, sir. 